Welcome to another episode of Kibbe on Liberty Lockdown Edition. And today I get to do something that I've been wanting to do since I launched this program, but logistics and uh, travel were always an issue. But happily, the government solved that by not letting any of us go anywhere anymore. So I today I have Anthony Davies and James Harrigan, the sort of the Abbott and Costello of translating economics into English. They are the co-hosts of, of Words and Numbers, one of my favorite podcasts published by the Foundation for Economic Education. And I thought they would be good guys to talk to because right now, uh, more than anybody else, more than Donald Trump, more than politicians, economists seem to be taking a drub drubbing, particularly libertarian economists who have the audacity to suggest that there are other factors involved and potential downsides in terms of lives and property and opportunity that come with a government lockdown. So I thought we might dig into the economics a little bit. Uh, welcome to the show, guys. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us, Matt. Uh, why don't we start by, um, we'll start with you, Anthony. Uh, tell us just a little bit about yourself and, and why it is you're qualified to discuss downward sloping demand curves. <laughs> I'm an economist at Duquesne University. Uh, my specialty is econometric analysis. That's the study of economic data. And uh, I've spent my life looking at things like this. So I, I, on the academic side, I do lots of things that involve numbers and Greek symbols. On the popular press side, I say lots of things that get me hate mail. <laughs> yeah, well, I guarantee you after this show, we will get you more hate mail. because Excellent. Cause I know I've done my job. <laughs> And James, what's your story? Well, my story is a little different. I'm not an economist. I'm a trained political philosopher who started running with economists probably foolishly uh, 10 years or so ago. Um, at this point, I am the managing director at the, of the Freedom Center at the University of Arizona, where I sit now here in Tucson. And uh, Anton and I run loose in the popular press. We had an article in uh, today's Philadelphia Inquirer and that the hate mail has already started. So we're looking forward to adding to that flood. What is it? Was what is the subject today? I didn't see that one yet. It's a more or less on the exact thing that we're going to be talking about with you today. Perfect. So we won't spoil the punchline. Uh, tell us a little bit. Um, I, you know, I, I was joking a little bit, but I, I think there's there's a high value for me, and I think for a lot of people, for guys like you that can translate sometimes complex economic issues, complex political philosophy issues into simple stories in plain English. Um, what was, is, that, is that what you set out to do with words and numbers? Actually, it is. We, um, we realized early on that people on our side of the street, classical liberals and, and the, the people who surround the classical liberals, are, are really good with presenting data and evidence, but they're terrible storytellers. And we decided that we would try to fill that that void by telling good stories to hook people before we hit them over the head with the with the numbers and the evidence. And we we like to think of ourselves as as serving as a bridge between classical liberals and and Democrats and Republicans because you know often as James says classical liberals will say things that Democrats and Re Republicans take the absolute wrong way. And so we, we try and present a face there. But conversely as well, Democrats and Republicans will say things that will get classical liberals hackles up and will step in and say, well, no, here's what they really mean. And so to, to the extent that we can get all these groups talking more 
uh, we, we stand to build a better society because I, I think fundamentally most people of any political persuasion pretty much agree on the ends. The question is the means to get there. Yeah. And, and hopefully uh, people will, will come into this conversation with an open mind because I do think economics has something to say about not just human happiness, but human health and, and, and human existence itself. So um, hopefully the hate mail will at least be balanced a little bit with, <laughs> I never thought about that part of it. Um, you, know, you, you know what's funny is your, your relatively new book, Cooperation and Coercion, How Busybodies Became Busy Bullies. When did that come out, by the way? About three, four weeks ago. Well, yeah. right before the lockdown. Yeah. yeah. That, so, this is going to turn out to be a complicated answer because it theoretically came out four weeks ago, but of course, the printer shut down. So people are ordering it and it's not being delivered at present. Yeah. I guess I guess your book is not an essential service. <laughs> right. Well, what's what's funny about the timing on this is I feel like um, the entire argument that we're having and and way too many of many of us have way too much time to be on social media arguing and virtue signaling and and hating on other people for not caring enough about their fellow man. And I feel like the entire conversation comes down to whether or not coercion is appropriate in this instance under a lockdown, or if humans, free human beings could come together in cooperation and, and mitigate some of the uncertainties and, and dangers associated with this virus. Um, that's, that's really what this book is all about, right? Yeah, one of the problems here, and this, this happens every time something comes up, be it a coronavirus or a hurricane or what have you, is people can see practically how others are cooperating. And, and they weigh that against not the practicality of coercion, but an idealized version of, of coercion, where the government wave, waves a magic wand and all these things that we want to happen automatically happen. And so in cooperation and coercion, what we're doing is, is starting off by encouraging people to take a, the same practical look at coercion on the side of government that they take with respect to cooperation on the side of people. And when you do that, you realize that the, the, the lawmakers, the politicians, the bureaucrats simply don't have enough information to be able to make decisions for people that are better on average than the people can make for themselves. That's not to say there's no place for coercion. It is to say that coercion is an incredibly powerful tool. And like a chainsaw, there are certain things you need it for, but you need to be careful as you don't start waving around at every problem that comes along. You know, I was I was thinking about that very point in the context of, of what we've been arguing about and, and Governor Cuomo in New York and uh, the governor of Michigan and various um, politicians in our country who have taken a very draconian use um, and sweeping use of, of coercion to lock down the economies, I, I'm always assuming that their intentions are very good and that they're hoping to stop the spread of this virus. But um, it seems particularly dangerous to be making really big decisions right now because of how little we seem to know about the future. And I'm, I'm thinking about, uh, I, I revisited this, this Hayek quote, and I want to read it directly. Um, we all, all of us economist geeks, quote this first sentence on a regular basis, but the rest of it is actually pretty telling right now. 
The curious task of economics is to demonstrate to men how little they really know about what they imagine they can design to the naive mind that can conceive of order only as the product of deliberate arrangement. It may seem absurd that in complex conditions, order and the adaption to the unknown can be achieved more effectively by decentralizing decisions and that a division of authority will actually extend the possibility of overall order. Yet that decentralization actually leads to more information being taken into account. And this, this of course, is the ultimate sort of Austrian economics critique of of any sort of central planning, not just socialism or communism, but any time a governor who governs over both Syracuse and Manhattan decides that one policy for hospitals is appropriate, even though if you look at the conditions on the ground in those two places, you get very different situations, you have very different local knowledge, and and doing what is appropriate for Manhattan turns out to be really bad for Syracuse. And But they, they make this mistake again and again and again. And I, I want to ask you guys, do you, uh, where do you fall on this debate right now? Do you, do you feel like more cooperation would, would be better or worse in this situation? Or is this the exception where a government lockdown seems like the only solution to this problem? Well, it's interesting, Matt, because you hit on something that Ant and I hit on a lot. Assume good motives, right? People, people really do, I think, agree on the, the proper ends of all kinds of different policies, right? We have, we have certain goals that we would all like to see come about. But at the same time, and, and this causes some fundamental friction, at the same time, you see despotic souls in the form of governors, right? Governors who just want to rule. And, and that's probably not the best approach for exactly the reason you point out in New York, the needs of Syracuse and the needs of Manhattan are radically different. If you back out to the nation as a whole and, and maybe think about the things that the president utters from time to time, where I live in Tucson, where Ant lives in Pittsburgh, and, and where some of our friends live in Los Angeles, radically different needs. And, and yet here we sit, um, telling politicians that they should really take a, a step backwards, take a deep breath, and admit that they don't know much is difficult. It's not a lesson that they want to learn. It's not words that are typically said to them. Uh, and, and I think that's right where most of our problems come from. You ask, would we rather see more cooperation? Well, yeah, of, of course we would. W what else would we want? Um, coercion, as Ann says, is necessary, but it's only necessary at certain times and in very specific ways. And we overshoot that consistently, right? People get afraid and they're terrified right now, and they just want an answer. But an answer is never what you need. You need a series of answers. And, and stop for a moment and look at some of the cooperation that's going on. So almost immediately, businesses that could started um, delivering on, on the doorstep. So just today, I had to order something from Best Buy. They've got the whole thing set up. I order it online. I drive up in my car. Somebody brings it out to me. Right, and off I go. Uh, stores, grocery stores, have started this business about uh, early setting aside early hours for the elderly, where if you're young, you're not allowed to come in. And the point is that this is the point of day where the store is cleanest. All of these solutions are spontaneous order. The government didn't come in and say do this. Businesses that cared as much about saving lives as politicians purport to 
looked at their situation and said, this is the best way I can make this happen. And they did what they did. And to the extent that we hold back on coercion, we give people and businesses the maximum ability to come up with unique solutions like that. And, and it's fascinating, too, because I, I think that elderly hour that the grocery stores have put in place is fascinating. But here's the thing. That started with one store in one place. I have no idea what store it was or where that was, but it was a great idea and it spread like wildfire throughout one industry, right? Yeah. And, and I, would, I, I like that sort of thing because look, everybody had a choice and they all chose that because that was the best option at the time under the circumstances. Had the government come in with, with a sledgehammer, I don't know that we would have gotten anything approaching as good an answer. You know, one of the critiques of classical liberalism is that that we seem to embrace um, sort of, I guess I would call it rational self-interest and and what that means. But I, I think the the caricature of that suggests that that self-interest somehow comes at the expense of other people and communities and and people not following rules. But this type of cooperation you're talking about actually debunks that like why wouldn't it be in your interest that other people in your community were safe and healthy right now? Yeah, self-interest doesn't mean selfishness. You know, I care about my family, I care about my friends, I care about my neighbors, and, and to that extent, it is in my self-interest to, to help to make sure that their lives are good. Similarly with the business, we talk about them being profit-motivated. Okay, but where does their profit come from? It comes from them putting their customer at the center of their lives and spending all their time figuring out what can I do to make my customer happier? Yes, it's motivated by self-interest, but it's a self-interest that focuses the activity on thinking about others as opposed to thinking about self. Right, it, it seems to us that self-interest as we understand it yields almost inevitably flourishing communities. You know, the uh, looking at, and I, I went through with a fairly fine-tooth comb the, the list of essential economic activities in for the state of Tennessee, and I've looked at other states as well, and the, the list varies widely from, from state to state. And I, I just imagine the, the interns in the governor's office deciding somewhat arbitrarily that this, that sounds important, I guess we better keep doing that, and this doesn't sound important, and, and, and we should get into all of the distortions that that creates, but, but one thing it absolutely stops is exactly the sort of innovation you're describing when you pull up to Best Buy, and they've found, um, I'm a big beer drinker, that's probably gonna be a big shock to you guys, but, but my local craft breweries, happily, the, the ones that I go to are allowed to stay open right now. That's not true in every state, it's not true in Vermont, uh, tragically. Um, but they've come up with a, an incredibly safe way, contactless way, enabled by technology, by which um, I can buy beer from them, and then they can keep producing beer so that they can keep their doors open during this crisis. All of that was not, there wasn't a sheet of regulations where that happened. It just was, how do I make this work in this very difficult environment, knowing that my customers want a service and I want to produce a product to satisfy them? Yeah, and I think you touched on it correctly. We imagine that the list of essential and non-essential businesses came down from on high. And I don't know for a fact, but it would not at all surprise me 
that was handed off to someone who was that was handed off to someone that was handed off to an intern and said, come up with a draft. And then somebody else looked and said, yeah, that looks pretty good, right? And what we're missing here is that you can't dissect the economy like that. So you could say, for example, food is a necessity. Okay, but what about the pallets that the food is delivered on? What about the tires that go on the trucks that deliver the food? What about the guy who changes the oil in the trucks? And all of this stuff is all interrelated such that if we pull things aside and say, well, food is essential, but th these other things aren't, eventually we won't have any food because we've shut down the businesses that feed into that thing that we've deemed essential. Yeah, Ant's exactly right here. And, and we do see this in, in meat packing just this past week, where, of course, meat is an essential item on everybody's list. But the styrofoam, the duct tape, things like this that enable people to get the meat to market non-essential in certain places, which have caused certain meatpacking plants to slow down or even shut down. Uh, here where I live in Tucson, Arizona, we've decided for whatever the reason that nail salons and golf courses are essential. So you, you can see that from state to state, you're going to get radically different answers on these matters. But when you start making two separate lists, you're always going to fail to see how the two lists interact with one another. And when we get shortages, sometimes it's because there are legitimate shortages, and sometimes it's because some some politician made a list. Yeah, and that, that's something we have to come to terms with. And uh, and by the way, politics comes into play. I'm I'm guessing that the reason that golf courses are open has something to do with uh, political clout. I'm Who just, golfs? Right. Just saying. <laughs> it might well. Yeah, I, I just can imagine it, it might well. Instead of pitchforks, uh, five irons marching. <laughs> <laughs> towards the capital. That's when things get really bad. Well, let's get back to this, uh, to, to the theme that I launched with uh, this, this idea that, that somehow economists and frankly, anybody that, you know, all of these protesters that, that are demanding that the economy be reopened and anybody that's arguing that the economic consequences and unemployment consequences of shutting down a significant portion of our economy is is a bad thing um people inevitably respond well you don't care about lives and there's this suggestion that there's a trade-off either we can protect life or we can protect the economy how do you how do you respond i'll start with you anthony yeah that that's a thing that economists always get we're, we're people are always claiming that we only care about dollars and and the fact is we're talking about trade-offs and people trade off all the time. The example I give is um, 5,000 people per year in America die from choking on solid food. Now we could fix it immediately by passing a law that says all food consumed by humans has to be pureed. And we would save literally 5,000 lives a year. And, and yet nobody wants to do that. And why don't we want to do that? Because we recognize there are trade-offs we're not willing to give up the pleasure of eating nice food that's not mush in exchange for saving that many lives. So once you recognize there are always trade-offs and we all make them, even people who claim that if it saves just one life, it's worth it. No, we all recognize there are trade-offs. So now with coronavirus, the question is, what is the trade-off? We've saved X number of lives by the shutdown, but we're also gonna cost a number of lives in terms of the economic uh, slowdown. We've got 
increased uh, incidence of depression, of suicide, of domestic violence. In fact, uh, I saw in the news just the other day, calls to the National Suicide Hotline are up 1,000% since the shutdown. And so what we see is we're not saving lives by the shutdown. We're moving them from one category of cause of death to a different one. And people get very confused when they start thinking about what they think economists are saying, right? Economics is really the study of human choices. It's the, it's the study of the human condition. Dollars enter into it in order to, to run a tabulation, more or less, to keep track of things from one category to the next. But the real point that economic thinking brings to the table is asking what people will choose under certain conditions. And there are always choices and there are always trade-offs. And anybody who's walking around right now saying if it saves just one life is wholly unaware of, a, of the trade-offs that are being made. Yeah, Governor Cuomo has said that. And and um, frankly, he's been quite candid about some of the mistakes he's made. He he went on to uh, comment. He's, he's doing these ongoing press conferences and and he now regrets the fact that they they shut down the schools because and and of course countries like South Korea decided not to shut down the government schools um, for for one one of the very practical if unintended consequences of doing so was putting a lot of young people uh, home with their grandparents who are who are now babysitting and were immediately putting the most at risk demographic in in touch with uh, with young people who, who are not at risk, but but potentially carriers of this um, one of one of an infinite number of unintended consequences of of what essentially is bad economics. Yeah, no, and I, I actually like to see a, Cuomo is not an archetype in my world, right? I don't think, wow, I hope my children grow up to be like that. Um, however, Hearing a politician of any stature at all admitting to have made a mistake is impressive. And I'd like to see a lot more of that because it would open up a certain kind of dialogue that we don't often get. And if we could actually discuss our errors in good faith, we might actually get much better policy moving forward. Yeah, I, I agree with that, with the small footnote that I hope that when he realizes that he's made an error, he does not think the error was in his application of coercion versus the application of coercion at all. Well, the the the, the lack of humility, and this this is sort of built into politics, and I maybe politicians are a little more guilty of this than the rest of us, but that that sort of pretense that there is always a solution, and I'm in charge, so I need to come up with a solution. That's that's a fundamental problem when you have concentrated power, which which is what government is. It's a monopoly on force. And this the combination of that, that sort of arrogance that I have a solution or I have to have a solution. If I don't have a solution, Nancy Pelosi is going to tell everybody that I don't care. So I better have a solution. But I'm thinking back to this, you know, describing the, the market. And and by the way, on, on my show, we quote Hayek a lot. And occasionally when we're getting really fancy, we quote Mises. But, you know, Mises in human action, Ludwig von Mises, the great Austrian economist in human action, uh, talks about the market not being a place, that it's this process of people uh, dealing in real time, facing a radically uncertain future, trying to figure stuff out, trying to do better for their families, 
trying to improve their 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 lives and 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 their happiness. And that very process is specifically something that really matters right now when things are radically uncertain. Like things are, we we don't know exactly what's going on with this virus. Um, I I've I've now spent way too much time uh, watching epidemiologists argue, and I've I've read some of these papers, and it's it's sort of mind blowing to watch the various. Um, smart guys. And these are guys with all the right letters and, and all the right degrees and everything else, um, disagree fundamentally on, on a set of data points about what, what is, what's happening today. And I watch this going on in Sweden. I watch smart people that I respect on polar opposite sides, sort of screaming at each other about what's going on in Sweden. And I, I think part of the problem is no one's willing to say, I don't know. I don't know, and maybe we should do no harm before we do something draconian. Yeah, that, I've often thought that as well, that you know, medical professionals have this rule, first do no harm. And I wish to God that politicians had that rule also. Sometimes the best thing to do is to sit back and do nothing, because consider, what we're really talking about with cooperation versus coercion is the choice between having one brain or a small set of brains come up with a solution or having tens of millions of brains try different things in the right solution, as James pointed out with the grocery store example, the right solution when it, someone one of those brains stumbles upon it, the other ones say, yeah, that works, and they start doing it too. That's a much better path to a solution than the handful of brains. Well, Matt got to it a second ago. Um, there has been a change in the way we approach politics in the United States throughout our history. And what we see right now is, I think, the pernicious culmination of the progressive movement, right, which has every single political question reduced to a technical question. That if we just pull the right lever and have the right input, the, the good output will naturally follow. And that's wrong on so many levels, and it has been for generations, that it, it befuddles me that people still don't see how wrong it is. We just keep walking down the same road over and over again. Yeah, they. Um, uh, one of the progressive uh, anthems is that the science is settled, and they use this a lot on climate change. But it, it strikes me that we've essentially settled the science of managing the infection of of COVID nineteen um, before a single paper has been peer reviewed and published, and and we we sort of went from from uh, herd immunity to lockdown almost overnight. And it was it was really based on on this Neil Ferguson study at the, the Imperial College. Um, Anthony, have you, have you looked at, at that and some of the assumptions? Uh, we've talked about this before on my show, but but it, it seemed like uh, people that wanted an easy answer didn't even read the study that it was that they're supposedly glomming onto. Yeah, and we we see that same kind of error repeated with with subsequent releases of data. People talk about the infection rate, and I think the, the one quote in New York City recently is like 3.5% or something, where technically it's called the case fatality rate. That's the number of people who get the disease and then die. And 3.5% or worldwide, that number is like 6 or 7%, is gargantuan. The number for the common flu is one-tenth of one percent. Except the problem is we came up with that number by asking how many people have the disease. Oh, well, we know that because they came into the hospital to seek treatment. 
Well, the people that come into the hospital to seek treatment are those that are, are most impacted by the thing. That's not the population that has the disease. James and I, in this uh, recent op-ed, used the analogy. It's like trying to figure out what fraction of your population are alcoholics by taking a poll at the local bar. Well, the local bar contains more so than the population in general, the alcoholics. So, of course, you're going to get a high number. And what's happening now is there are the first randomized studies coming out. They're very tenuous. They're small groups, but, but there are a number of them from, from across the country and in Europe. And they're all pointing to the same numbers, that the case fatality rate is not 3 5 7%. It's about 1.1, The The challenge with with all of this is it's it still gets down to where so we've 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 chosen this path um and and i think some of the some of the particular angst and even anger targeting uh that the swedish government and the the people of sweden is that they deviated from what apparently was the accepted strategy and if if it works, I think a lot of people are going to be held accountable for all the all of the collateral damage that we've done. Um, unemployment right now is I think we have we have we surpassed the Great Depression yet in the United States, but we're we're getting very close and it's it's happening more rapidly, and and the consequences of that um, at some point we we can start applying some numbers to that in terms of of lives and everything else. Yeah, the, the numbers, we have to wait for a month for the official numbers to come out, but we can take a decent estimate based on various things. And the estimates currently are pointing to around 15% unemployment. The uh, president of the Federal Reserve of uh, St. Louis, I believe, came out recently and said that he anticipates that unemployment will peak at 30%. That's higher that the peak at the Great Depression was 25%. Now, what makes the difference between the Great Depression and what we have now, the term I like to use is the Great Suppression. The Great Suppression was the government shutting us down. It wasn't some economic phenomenon that was going on. We can turn the economy back on. The sooner we do that, the quicker that unemployment rate is going to come down. The Great Depression, remember, part of what made it great was it lasted a decade. The sooner we can get back to business as usual, the lesser the chance this will become a great anything. And remember where we started, right? We, we started with this idea that maybe in order to get people to think about these sorts of things, we need to tell better stories. And the story that I've been telling lately are all of the people who are going to be evicted and foreclosed upon as a result of not having their jobs, not being able to engage in their livelihoods. They're all going to lose their homes because of an act that the government undertook, which in, in retrospect seems to be a touch overwrought. Well, yeah, what, about, no. what, what about those people? Do we not care about those people? Because I sure do. I care about them a lot. And let me head off some of the hate mail right now before somebody says, well, these two guys just don't care about all the people who would die from coronavirus if we turn the economy back on. The worst case numbers that were quoted back in March were 1.7 million American deaths. The numbers we're looking at now, and this is not because of the shutdown, it's because we're coming to a better understanding that this thing is not as fat fatal as what we thought. The numbers we're looking at now are 100 to 200,000. Now, that's way worse than the flu. 
but it isn't anywhere close to the 1.7 million. Yeah. And, and Ant, why don't you explain what that means in dollar terms? Given the amount of money that we have thrown at this problem and the number of victims that we could legitimately hope to see, what are, what are these saved lives costing us? Right. So the shutdown costs us, roughly speaking, $3 trillion. And that's assuming that we come out of it in June, July, or thereabouts. $3 trillion. And if we save 200, 100,000 lives because of the shutdown, each one of those lives have cost us $15 million. Now, again, the hate mail comes. I'm not equating human life to dollars. What I am pointing out is that if we're going to spend $15 million to save per life to save lives. Well, there are other ways we could do it. They're much better. Um, if we if we put all sorts of things in place, uh, regimens to help uh, research toward reducing heart disease, which kills 700,000 Americans a year, we could put a much larger dent than 100, 200,000 lives into that death by heart disease by spending the $3 trillion there. And so the, the bottom line is, look, if, if this is what we really want to do, spend $3 trillion saving lives, saving lives via preventing coronavirus is not the best use of that those resources. You know, you talk about economic trade-offs, and this is this is one of the reasons why people don't like us, because we're always telling them, if you, if you do this, you can't do that. And it's very frustrating when anyone tells you that. But I was watching uh, this video went viral on on Twitter of the apparently the city of Los Angeles had bulldozers filling in the skate park on the beach. I don't know if you guys saw this or not. Yeah. And me me being that obnoxious economist, I had well, I, me being the libertarian had the first thought. I said, what a petty libertarian what a petty authoritarian thing to do. And then as an economist, I started saying, I wonder how much that cost. And I wonder what the city of Los Angeles could have done with all of the resources it took to hire that guy and to fuel up that bulldozer and to fill that skate park with sand, you know, could you have bought X number of uh, uh, N95 masks to give to healthcare workers? Well, you couldn't because you're already broke. So you're probably going to go to Sacramento for a bailout. And Sacramento is super broke. So you're probably going to go to the federal government for a bailout. And they might just give it to you, but they don't have any money. So they're going to do all this funky stuff to do that. That's all, that's all trade-offs. That, that exist whether or not you like it. So every time we do we choose one path, there's a cost, there's a price to be paid. That's that's essentially what people get uncomfortable with. Yeah, they, they get mad at, at economists as if we created the thing. We don't, we're just pointing to it, it's there, whether you wanna acknowledge it or not. Right, Matt, and your example is just another instance of the seen and the unseen, right? What's the scene? Well, those skaters are no longer in the skate park. All right, but skating as I watch it on television. I'm not a skater myself, obviously enough, but as I watch it, there's always a lot of space between the skaters. Where are they now, now that they've been disallowed from going to the skate park? Are they congregating closer than they would have been otherwise? That seems to be a question that should have been asked before the sand hit the pavement. And, and yet it, it wasn't, right? Like politicians said, let's just fill the skate parks with sand. We'll make it impossible for these people to go there. They never asked where they would go instead. Yeah. And by, by the way, I think uh, second only to libertarians, uh, skateboarders are very good at social distancing, even <laughs> in the best of times. <laughs> but by the way, there's a there's a new video that I just saw of those very skateboarders going in 
with shovels and they've already dug out the park and they've repopulated it. They, they don't like government authority, although I suspect um, none of them have read uh, Omnipotent Government by Mises. I, I suspect that, that that instinct is still there. Yeah, give it time. You never know what might happen. Yeah. Um, never, never let a crisis go to waste. Maybe we can teach people the, the consequences of, of abusive government in this process. Um, I, I touched on this, but, um, and Anthony, you mentioned uh, 3 trillion economic costs. I, I assume you're talking about lost uh, earnings and GDP. Is that? Yes, that's correct. Mm-hmm. Well, um, the, the reason I wondered is that our federal government in all of its uh, collective wisdom has already passed uh, 2.2 trillion plus another 4 trillion from the Federal Reserve that we're injecting into the economy somehow. And it's uh, we had Thomas Massey on, a, a congressman from Kentucky, talking about the, the, the 100% non-process for deciding what went into that bill. It was basically Nancy Pelosi negotiating with Mitch McConnell and uh, the, the Treasury Secretary to come up with this 2.2 trillion, where the, where are they getting the money from? I didn't think we had any money. No, they don't have any money. <laughs> they're gonna they're gonna attempt to borrow it, and of course, who are they gonna borrow from? We're all in lockdown, right? Um, so not all of it, but a, a decent chunk of it is gonna come from the Federal Reserve in the form of, of printing dollars. We say printing dollars. They're gonna expand the money supply, and and this is. James and I have talked about this for many years. We knew this was coming. Now, I think coronavirus accelerated the calendar a bit. But but the federal government for decades has been on track to put itself in a situation where it, it can't borrow anymore. It's going to have to simply print money. And when it does that, we're all going to pay in the form of higher prices. We're going to see inflation. And if you think they're going to stop at this initial round of printing money, you're crazy. This will This will continue. Oh, they're going to say, even after coronavirus is gone, they're going to say next year. Remember when we did that? That was such a great idea. We created all these jobs. Let's do it again. We're going to see an annual $2 trillion just because we can. I think I think in your new book, you talk about sort of the the teaching moment here is, is what happened in Venezuela. And they they started off by nationalizing industries and and uh, Hugo Chavez was was buying votes with with generous uh, uh, welfare support, and it all devolved into hyperinflation. The good news is we're a lot wealthier than they are, but uh, I, I feel people should still learn the Venezuela story because there's there are laws of economics at play here. Yeah, the, the Venezuelan story is is become so ridiculous in the end. James liked to tell the story, but I'll tell it. Uh, the, the Venezuelans now, their currency has become so valueless that nobody counts it anymore. You go to the store to buy something and you stick it on a scale. They weigh it. Based on the weight, they can estimate how much money is there, right? Because it's not worth counting it. The, the individual bills aren't worth anything. In fact, I, I saw a picture of, of downtown Venezuela Street, and it's it's trash. You see all this trash on the ground. You realize, oh, my God, that's their currency. It's so valueless that they just leave it on the ground. Now, yes, Venezuela is a much smaller economy than the United States, but the difference is simply one of size. It's not kind. The same economic forces that gave us what today is Venezuela will give us the same thing in the U.S. if we keep going down this path. Yeah, no, and, and something that might resonate with Americans right now in Venezuela, the currency is actually worth um, less than toilet paper. 
<laughs> what do you figure is happening right now? Yeah. Um, and, and there you go. But, you know, Ant, Ant stopped short of the terrible end of the Venezuelan story. Because, yeah, they, they start by nationalizing the oil industry. And, and that works for a little while, as this often does. But when the wheels came off that bus, um, to cut to the end, food growers, farmers, couldn't get their product to, to stores at a price that would allow them to make a profit, meaning to say they couldn't be in business as farmers anymore. What does the Venezuelan government do? Conscripts Venezuelans to go work on farms. That's human slavery. Let's call it what it is. It's slavery, right? And I think you have to keep in mind that Venezuela is, is filled with good, rational people just like every place else. And they should be the richest people on the face of the planet because they sit on the largest oil reserve on the globe. Uh, and yet they're enslaved. Well, that could be our future. And if you think it can't happen here, you're crazy. It can absolutely happen here. Yeah. And and I, I tend to be more of a pessimist for reasons that we'll probably get into. But uh, you just had Nobel laureate Vernon Smith on on words and numbers and he's more optimistic. Uh, let's start by summarizing his argument, and then um, maybe I'll I'll be audacious enough to pick apart one of the smartest people in the world who I think the world of. Well, Vernon is is beautifully optimistic, and he he puts his his faith as I do as well in human beings figuring out how to move forward. And the fact is, if if you look at what's going on right now, all of the all of the physical plant that we had before coronavirus, we still have. All of the resources we had, we still have. All the labor force we had, we still have. All of our training and education is still here. Everything we have that was in process producing goods and services for us and for the world prior to coronavirus, we still have. All that's necessary is for us to release people, say, yeah, go back and keep doing what you were doing. And all of all of this will, will come back to normal pretty quickly. Uh, but but again, we're, we're back to the problem of you've got there's nothing government can do here. The only things the, the only benefit government really can offer us is to get out of the way and let people figure out how to negotiate this crisis in the best way they can. And that, of course, is where my skepticism comes from, because getting out of the way would require uh, politicians to show a level of humility that they haven't been willing to show so far in this crisis and perhaps um, possibly even before that. Um, but 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 also probably to acknowledge that that mistakes were made um, because we are going to have uh, substantial disruptions in in the food supply chain and and all of the interrelated stuff that that James was talking about. We're, we're not going to have tire production. We're not going to have this, that, and the other. And some of this stuff takes a while to get back online, and I can I can see the the political clamoring to do something right now, and I, there's there's been just in my mind there's been very few examples of government getting out of the way, allowing economy to recover. That of course is why the Great Depression lasted some ten years in the first place. So so what do we what do we do about that? We have a few examples. They were just beautiful examples earlier on in the coronavirus of government getting out of the way. When, when it became crystal clear to, to people that 
part of the problem with us getting um, uh, tests for coronavirus was the burdensome FDA regulations. And so those were scaled back. Uh, part of the problem with getting goods to where they're needed is rules on how many hours truckers were allowed to drive. So these, those were scaled back. And we saw kind of a sweep of those things early on with coronavirus of, of people coming to the realization and then politicians having to respond to that by getting government out of the way in the form of unnecessary regulations. I think, I hope we get more of this. My guess is with springtime here and with somebody having said May 1 as a date, I think come May 1, there are going to be a lot of Americans who say, I've had enough. I'm opening my business. I don't care what you say. And a week later, the police are going to throw up their hands and say, there are too many people violating the shutdown law. There's nothing we can do. And a week after that, the politicians are going to come out and say, we have thought about this and we have determined that it's time to open up the economy. When in fact, it's the people themselves who've decided this is enough. I do suspect it's going to go that way. But back to the original point, right? You, you make the case that all kinds of red tape got cut, and regulation got scaled back. And in fact, it did. And that was in more or less the first two weeks of the shutdown. Um, we haven't seen that since the first two weeks of the shutdown. That was a reaction on the part of the political class to backtrack and I think reinforce their position, which is now perfectly reinforced. I doubt we're going to see them backtrack again. So yeah. I, I'm not as sanguine, I think, Ant, as, as you are. I'm, I'm more in the Kibbe camp than I am in the Davies, Vernon Smith camp. Um, because, yes, all the productive capacity remains. It does. That, it's, that's just simply correct. But the political class remains as well. And, and therein lies the problem. And that the, uh, the hypocrisy of, uh, and, and, and a lot of really smart people have pointed out, the hypocrisy of waiting until a fundamental crisis to eliminate all of these ridiculous regulations, uh, FDA red tape that kept life-saving drugs from coming to market, uh, licensure laws that, that, that defended uh, politically empowered cartels at the expense of, of mom and pop operations. All of that stuff has been temporarily stripped away. I'll use my beer example again. Um, one, one of the main barriers to, to craft beer and, and nano breweries was, was this complex of, of regulations that the beer industrial complex, the distributors and, and big beer, you know, the kind of beer that doesn't taste any good. Those guys, <laughs> those guys created this, this complex of state and federal laws that prevented these young upstarts from happening. A lot of those have been stripped away uh, in, in my neighboring state of Virginia, um, uh, these breweries are now delivering directly to homes, for God's sake. So the question is, why weren't they always allowed to do that? Right. Why suddenly is this stuff okay? And I think we can at least point out that if, if it made sense during a crisis not to have these regulations, it never made sense to have them in the first place. Right. It, it's rank hypocrisy. If, if you can roll back regulations under the worst of times, they were never required under the best of times. Yeah. Well, I, I hope that Vernon is right, and I hope that, that I am wrong, and I, I do think that uh, I do see um, the Trump administration, uh, one of Trump's instincts, he doesn't always have the same instinct uh, at any given moment, but one of his instincts has been to open up the economy. Um, I hope he doesn't proscribe that so much as, make, as being a voice of reason in this. I don't really need the president any more than I need a governor to decide which industries get to open and which don't. I, I think 
uh, maybe they could free the rest of us to figure this stuff out and take responsibility for that. And you're going to see all sorts of innovative and safer things to to happen along the way. But but I'm worried about it because I've never seen anything quite like this and how people have fallen in line and sort of mindlessly waiting for some politician to tell them what to do and politicians never having an exit strategy when they impose a lockdown in the first place, be sort of being frozen into place politically, not knowing what to do. So that just sounds depressing, doesn't it? <laughs> it, it is, it is depressing, but it's hard to see where it's wrong. Yeah. Right. I mean, here we are, we, we had a problem. I mean, let's not deny that there, there's a real problem in front of us, but the rapidity with which the American people forfeited their freedom in the name of safety was really something to see. I mean, just watching the dominoes fall day after day after day to the point where we became a nation of snitches, right? People are actually calling local and state government offices to rat out their neighbors for things they don't like. And this is, I mean, that this is busy bullyism to its core, right? We're, we're a nation of Gladys Kravitz's gone, gone amok. But I, yeah, I, I, New York City is a good example of that. Just recently, they, the police put out this thing. They have a thing now you can, if you see a group of people congregating, you could take a picture and text it, and they'll send the cops out. <laughs> here in Tucson, Arizona, we had a web form that you could fill out that went straight to the, <laughs> straight to the city manager's office, and there was a checkbox there for you to fill out the form anonymously. So, I mean, we... We deteriorated to the level of the Stasi in about three weeks, yeah, and and that's distressing. Well, I, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna side with with Vernon and Anthony about about the people because I do think that people are getting frustrated and they deferred to the experts and they wanted to do the right thing and they were told originally that that this was a short term lockdown because we were flattening the curve to uh, protect hospital capacity. Um, I, I think they probably know at this point they've been had and that the goalpost has been changed and that, that something has to happen. And I'm, I'm hoping that, that, that people sort of uh, grab some of their freedom back because that's the only way we rebuild this economy. Why don't, why don't you tell us again where we can find your excellent podcast, Words and Numbers? Words and Numbers, you can find at wordsandnumbers.com. <laughs> I don't remember where it is. Wordsandnumbers.com. We're weekly podcasts. We're also on all the uh, major podcast players. And and your book, I assume, is available theoretically everywhere, except that you better buy the Kindle version. because. <laughs> right, yeah. You can buy it on Amazon. Now, yeah. when it shows up, it's another matter. But you can buy it on Amazon. <laughs> yeah. Thank you guys so much. And uh, let's do this again sometime. Thank you, Matt. It was good talking to you. Thanks for listening to Kibbe on Liberty. Be sure to subscribe and rate the podcast. Your ratings will help us reach even more people with our mostly honest conversations with mostly interesting people.